Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. My privilege to be here tonight. The 7th century explosion of Greek genius in Greece, in Asia Minor and Sicily remains not only unique, we have no other example in human history of anything that comes near that explosion of total genius across the whole field of art and thought and politics, but it remains enigmatic. Its sources are by no means clear. And here we run into an enormous problem, the political correctness which now blights intellectual life in this country more than in any other in which I teach or lecture, will take generations to repair, and it means we cannot ask the urgent, the difficult questions. We can talk, we're just allowed to talk about the privileged climate in Sicily, in Ionia, in the Peloponnesus. That's allowed. With some care, we may hint that the availability of protein in the diet gave an enormous advantage to that population. Whereas in many other parts of the world, protein was singularly lacking. But then come the really taboo questions. In what way does that explosion of leisure, of being able to spend hours and hours in abstract intellectual pursuit, in speculative philosophic debate, in mathematical research, relate to two other crucial components which we are hardly allowed to mention. The leisure allowed by slavery absolutely crucial, which meant that the masters, the privileged, could get on with the business of abstract thought, poetry and art, because so many of the daily tasks of life were done for them. And even more taboo, the subservient role of women In what way does the deeply subservient role of women in the world of Plato, of Aristotle, of Sophocles, of Aeschylus, relate to the confident exponential power of philosophic, metaphysical, mathematical thought? I would have liked to comment on these questions but it's almost impossible. I leave them with you. Whatever 
the complicated enigmatic sources, the Greek miracle is and it remains a miracle. The discovery and cultivation of abstract thought. Far too often you and I in our daily lives take for granted what is in fact an extraordinarily complicated and almost scandalous development. Scandalous, which in the Greek sense of the word skandalon implies that which is stunningly astonishing, which comes as a shock to consciousness. The idea that you spend an important part of your life thinking abstractly or thinking about abstract problems by no means evident. In many, many cultures, it never developed. We have one vast continent, again, I shouldn't name it, where for 2,000 years not one theorem has emerged. Not one theorem. Probably no metaphysical, axiomatic concept by no means evident. Parmenides offers the equation which will guide us this evening between being and thinking. That to be is to think. That those who do not think are not in some sense. They are less than being. An enormous provocation, a fantastic proposal thought, play of intellect, speculation, which are non-utilitarian, may I underline that heavily, which are strictly considered useless in Kant's proud word, disinterested, which have no use whatever, possibly no application. Abstract theoretical pursuits and obsessions for which an Archimedes or a Socrates are prepared to die. The problem in conic sections of the fifth degree, which Archimedes is working on in his garden, when the murderers break in, the soldiers, was only solved in the late 17th century. But he was working on it. And he regarded it as perfectly absurd to give up what he was doing, either to flee or save his life, because conic sections are eternal and more interesting and more important. I think of that, what that implies as a rare and peculiar explosion of pure thought. Deep currents of radiant uselessness relate the Greek cultivation of pure mathematics. There's wonderful mathematics in the Sumerian culture, in Egypt, but always applied. Applied to agriculture, applied to meteorology, applied gradually to navigation. The notion of giving your life or teaching to something totally useless, the luxury of the soul, of the transcendent, was Greek, and at that moment, uniquely Greek. 
wonderful American poet, Edna St. Vincent Millay, put it beautifully in a poem about Euclid's axioms. She said, now I have looked on beauty bare. That's exactly right. Now I have looked on beauty bare. non difficult to conceive of how a culture turns in that direction. And there begins a great Western journey, that voyaging through strange seas of thought alone, voyaging through strange seas of thought alone, Wordsworth's wonderful line on the Newton statue in Trinity College Chapel, Cambridge. Voyaging through strange seas of thought alone. The incessant endeavor to erect what Yeats will then call monuments of unaging intellect. Monuments of unaging intellect. In archaic, pre-Socratic philosophic, scientific speculation and argument, the executive forms, the way you present your argument, even mathematical, are those of poetry. The cosmological texts of Parmenides, of Empedocles, of the numerous philosophic rhapsodes and naturalists, of whose work we only have torn fragments, are in verse. The reason for this may have been rhetorical. The magus, the cosmologist, the physicist, recites his doctrine, as does the bard when he declaims his narrative. And poetic form is a mnemonic aid. It solicits and assists memory. We live now in a civilization where schools are based on organized amnesia, where there is no cultivation of the infinite powers of memory, of the powers to memorize and recall and keep in you alive what you have heard, verse is much easier to learn by heart, to remember. This may have been a very important factor. It solicits and assists memory. Hence Plato's bitter critique of writing. Once you start writing, he says, you'll stop living it innerly, Secondly, you can't argue with it. This is a very important point. And thirdly, writing falsifies the living, organic pulse of speculative thought, which we'll come back to this. Incipient science and philosophy are not only oral, they may have been paced, punctuated by music. Just before his death, Socrates turns to music, turns to song. And everything I'm trying to say to you this evening was put so infinitely better by Nietzsche, you must dance your thought. You must dance your thought. Sie müssen ihren Gedanken tanzen, which is how Nietzsche tried to invoke the unity of the human body when it is in the ecstatic process of philosophic thought. But the crux lies deeper. It is the seminal intuition that there is in the process of sustained creative thought a pulse, a shaping force profoundly analogous to poetic creation. 
even analytic thought, even the difficult, dry motions of spirit. That's Dante's wonderful phrase, motor spirituale. Motions of spirit in logic have their poetic structure. They are sometimes hidden wellsprings in metaphor. I should have said all this in verse. Ludwig Wittgenstein, at the end of the investigations. I should have said all this in verse. The lasting melody, the major mathematical theorem, the unforgettable poem, the enduring philosophic construct have a common origin, a tangled root, albeit at pre-conscious depths, as yet altogether inaccessible to our understanding. Hence the key feature when they share, the lightning bolt of intuition, the sudden burst of insight, the melody, the key, the happening, we can't analyze it, the birth of a melody. Levi-Strauss, the greatest mystery in the sciences of man is the invention of a melody. And indeed it remains an inaccessible mystery. The poem, the poetic image given as in a dream, the ontological proof of God's existence in Anselm or Descartes' cogito, partially dreamt. Heraclitus sensed that first order philosophic thought. He said, what is it to think right? It is to touch lightning. It is to touch lightning. We tend to forget how much of philosophy and the sciences was expressed in the form of poems from the age of the pre-Socratics and Lucretius, De Rerum Natura, still the summit, to almost the present day. Astronomical and cosmographic treatises, botany, agricultural prescripts after Virgil, medical compendia, the first detailed diagnostic account of syphilis is a poem, is an epic poem. It's a curious point. And the great gray zone of astrological, geomantic, alchemical texts appeared in versions from Hellenistic times to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. In English literature, the tradition is a glorious one. The mutability cantos of Spencer Duns reach into metaphysics. The new celestial mechanics and even geometry are among the glories of Elizabethan Jacobean inspiration, as are Chapman's often technical expositions of Christian Stoicism and the numerous didactic speculative evocations of the sciences in Milton's epics. Observe his canny equivocation between Ptolemaic and Copernican models. The 18th century abounds in the poetics of thought. Pope, paraphrasing Newton in his essay on man, formed generations of persuaded readers, as did, in a minor key, Akenside's hymn to science, Thomson's seasons, permeated by Newtonian principles. If there is in Romanticism a recurrent critique of science, notably in Blake, there is also the abiding philosophical concern of Coleridge, 
the first-hand Platonism of Shelley, who was a superb student of Greek and a fluent translator of Greek, and the currents of scientific and poetic amalgamation in Wordsworth and Coleridge. Keats's astronomical images are among the most luminous in the English language. He, too, was a watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. And there is, above all, we now all thinking of it in this year, the proto-revolutionary paradigm of Erasmus Darwin's Temple of Nature, 1803, the nascent revolutions in geology, the temptations of philosophic agnosticism, the deepening awareness of the conflicting tenor of all biological existence generate the substance of Tennyson's great in memoriam. Browning remains among the most philosophically, scientifically concerned and argumentative among poets. Like Coleridge before him, like Matthew Arnold witnesses Empedocles, the attempt at a summarizing philosophic construct in epic verse is a recurrent vision. As modern science becomes more complex, as its languages become translatable only to the initiate, poetic mirrorings become much rarer. We find them in Paul Valéry, in that fine mathematician William Empson, occasionally in Auden. Here, too, there are insightful responses to the sciences and, as I said, even to modern mathematics. But there are exceptional instances. What poem has adequately celebrated the lunar landings or the unraveling of DNA? But the poetry of thought comprises far more than actual poetic means of expression. It presses upon us wherever, whenever an intellect, a consciousness of the first rank, allows us to make out, to follow it at work, and to watch a mind at work, the best window is probably prose. In his journals, for the 27th of June, 1821, Leopardi, a philosophic mind of the very first rank, says, never forget that we must reconcile, not dissimulate, not hide, not disguise by any supposedly insurmountable barriers the magnificence of poetry and the magnificence of science. I want to give, the list is infinite, a few examples, concrete examples tonight of looking through the window. In 1940, at a very difficult moment, the great mathematician at Cambridge, G.H. Hardy, published a small book, A Mathematician's Apology. It's a masterpiece. And it's very hard for us poor humanists to live with. So Greek mathematics is permanent, 
more permanent even than Greek literature. Archimedes will be remembered when Aeschylus is forgotten because languages die and mathematical ideas do not die. Immortality may be a silly word, but probably a mathematician has the best chance of whatever it may mean. And he goes on, a mathematical proof should resemble a simple and clear-cut constellation, not a scattered cluster in the Milky Way. Pure mathematics seems to me a rock on which all idealism founders. A prime is a prime not because we think so, or because our minds are shaped in one way rather than another, but because it is so, because mathematical reality is built that way. This was a superb prose. Or note how Carlyle makes words dance to the tune of his concepts in the 1833 essay called Count Cagliostro. Here, too, destiny has cared for her favorite, that a powder nimbus of astonishment, a powder nimbus of astonishment, mystification and uncertainty should still uncertain the quack of quacks is right and suitable. Such was by nature and art his chosen uniform and environment. Thus, as formerly in life, so now in history, it is in huge fluctuating smokes, whirlwinds, partially illumined into a most brazen glory, yet united, coalescing with the region of everlasting darkness, in miraculous clear obscure that he works and rides. Allow me to come back for a moment on how he uses concepts, associations of words from the exact sciences of his time to define this enormously complicated notion which he's trying to get clear for us. Cagliostro was a scoundrel, a confidence artist, a fake guru, a magician, but also immensely brilliant and seductive like Casanova, a powder nimbus of astonishment, as fine a definition as I know of the moment in which scientific research coalesces. Mystification in uncertainty uncircling, huge fluctuating smoke whirlwinds, smoke whirlwinds, entirely could have been out of the ancient mariner, could also have been out of a contemporary treatment of meteorology. And the first men who saw factory smoke spiraling, which Carlyle did and Carlyle noted and observed closely, the smoke whirlwinds, in miraculous, clear, obscure, chiaroscuro. Or listen to the epic drumbeat, the boom, boom, so characteristic of romanticism, of the romantic strategy of staging ideas, of putting ideas on the stage, 
of dramatizing an argument, the heart of romanticism. In the famous opening paragraph of the Communist Manifesto of 1848, hear the drums. A specter is haunting Europe. You'll also hear the iambics, quite unconsciously. At a certain intensity of abstract presentation, it starts going iambic. It's a, it's a difficult We seem to carry that beat very deeply inside ourselves. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this specter. Pope and Tsar, Metternich and Guizot, French radicals and German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against some more advanced opposition parties as well as against reactionary adversaries? It is high time to meet this nursery tale of the marching spectre. It is high time to meet this nursery tale of the marching spectre. And you have that beat which will animate radical prose, radical prose directly the air to the romantic utopian spirit of a writer like Victor Hugo, who Marx knew so well. The contrary, the decision to freeze our responses, to chill us by extreme restraint, by any refusal of a drumbeat, to create a very quiet music. Language makes transparent the workings the recoil of an inward conversazione in Machiavelli's Prince of 1513. It is prose of, of breathtaking purity and translucency. You're so sure you're seeing through it, and then you come back and you realize you have to look again and again. One ought to be both feared and loved. But as it is difficult for the two to go together, it is much safer to be feared than loved if one of the two has to be wanting. For it may be said of men in general that they are ungrateful, voluble, dissemblers, anxious to avoid danger, covetous of gain. As long as you benefit them, they are entirely yours. They offer you their blood, their goods, their life, and their children. As I have before said, when the necessity is remote, but when it approaches, they rebel. And men have less scruple in offending one who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared. For love is held by a chain of obligation, which, men being selfish, is broken whenever it serves their purpose, but fear is maintained by dread of punishment, which never fails, never. Jamai, never, he repeats it twice. Fear never fails, never.
And Machiavelli's use of a kind of, it isn't Latin, it's very much like Latin, but the way he chooses the sequences, that one is one to ponder. Blood first, they offer you their blood, their goods, their life, and after life comes the children and their children. Uh, the lesser writer would have put the children before life. But Machiavelli paces the sentence in such a way that the surprise comes with the children. Even logic of the most astringent kind has been made to smile. Famously in Alice in Wonderland, which is, of course, as you know, built around complex logical paradoxes which go back to Zeno and the pre-Socratics. Or in W.V.O. Quine's wonderful book, Word and Object, what is at issue for Quine? The indeterminacy in translation, which plagues the anthropological linguist and his native informant. It's a delightful high comedy of very difficult thought. Here's the anthropologist, very proud, he's found a native informant who will translate for him. And whenever a rabbit runs by, the native informant says, Kavakai, Kavakai. And the anthropologist is so proud. Now that, he's finally now learned the word for rabbit. Quine. There may be a local rabbit fly unknown to the linguist and recognizable some way off by its long wings and erratic movements and seeing such a fly in the neighborhood of an ill-glimpsed animal could help a native to recognize the latter as a rabbit. Ocular irradiations, combining poor glimpses of rabbits with good ones, of rabbit flies, would belong to the stimulus meaning of gavagai for natives generally, and not at all to that of what the linguist thinks is a rabbit. A situation, and this is Quine at his finest, American best, a situation made the more perplexing by verbal hints from assembled native kibitzes. And you have a wonderful picture of the assembled native kibitzes making the situation much worse. Incomparably, it is through Plato that we hear thought singing. No one has ever surpassed the platonic genius of making difficult, abstract, speculative thought sing. There are so many passages. There is the wonderful one in the Protagoras. Protagoras, the sophist, is with his students. They're in a row, and they've hooked their, they've hooked their arms in each other and they're walking up and down Plato's Academy very rapidly and as a row, students on both sides, and suddenly they give a great cry. They have cornered a truth. It's a magnificent image. It's a hunter's cry 
when you have cornered a truth. I take a passage, I could take anywhere, from the Phaedo. It would be admitted by everyone that God in the form of life and whatever else is immortal can never cease to exist. Then what is immortal is also indestructible. Thus the immortal soul must surely be imperishable also. So it appears that when death comes to a man, what is mortal in him dies. But the immortal part withdraws at the approach of death and escapes unharmed, indestructible. Therefore it is as certain as anything can be that the soul is immortal and imperishable and that our souls will really exist in the next world. By the lights of that passage, two and a half thousand years of Western metaphysics and most of what passes for religion drew on this passage for their promise of immortality. And in the days, I've referred to it, immediately preceding his death, Socrates himself has been singing and composing verse. As will Descartes, when freezing infirmity overtakes him in the winter dark of Sweden. The very last writings of Descartes are poetry. Valéry summed it up. All thought begins as a poem. Toute pensée commence comme poème. And Valéry was a philosophic and mathematical power of, the, of very great distinction. All thought begins as a poem. Will this sovereign concordance, this fusion at the roots, persist? Or will the poetry of thought yield to the neurochemistry of thought? The new neurological biochemical models of the operations of the cortex, of the synapses and internets, which trigger, communicate, and store the cerebral processes which we experience of thought the chemistry, the molecular construct of memory. We're very far along that road that for the sufferer of Alzheimer or amnesia, memories are going to be implanted. I find nothing more terrifying. The idea that you come to with new memories, not even science fiction had quite gone that far, but we're not far from it. And now, please, I'm not, please, trying to be clever, please. I think that when the dates of our politics and perhaps even of some of our recent horrible and idiotic wars are forgotten, it will emerge that the most important date in the history of modern man is the afternoon of the 4th of May, 1996, May 4th, 1996. Please, I'm trying to be deadly serious. On that afternoon, a little box, smaller than your PC, very small box, defeats the strongest player of chess in the history of the world, defeats Garry Kasparov. 
now let's go slowly. Kasparov kept a journal of notes during that famous match. And what does he write down? The machine was not calculating, it was thinking. That's Kasparov's own note. The machine was not calculating, it was thinking. Mesmerized by this, seeking help, I put it to a number of my wonderfully generous Cambridge scientific colleagues. Footnote, humanists are a pretty rotten lot. Scientists are terribly kind. They help. They try to help. I've just never found them snobbish or turning one down. They say, sit down and I'll try to help. They said, careful. No one is quite sure whether there is an ontological difference between calculating and thinking. It's a very clever way out of the problem. Did Kasparov get it naive in the sense that there is no fundamental way of differentiating them? I'm not sure. Let me be completely frank. I'm not sure. The calculation of up to 20 million moves per nanosecond 20 million moves per nanosecond, had not before defeated a player of Kasparov's strengths. Indeed, he found the calculations of the machine often somewhat naive and gross. He was sure he could see deeper, that the human intellect could attach to such notions as sacrifice or what is called an intermove, seemingly purposeless, precisions which no machine could match. And that afternoon he lost. Not by a mistake, he was playing magnificently. Not by an oversight, machine found a move which he could not cope with. Machine is not calculating, it is thinking. It would be very foolish to prophesy. Are we now at a fundamental turning point? Chess is the first lovely human activity to be end-stopped. The very first. The next Supreme World Championship will be between two computers who will play at a depth and speed not accessible to man. Think of that. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I find it sad beyond words, but no one is interested in our sadness. The evolution is continuing and speeding up. And Hardy said, remember, Aeschylus will be forgotten and the axioms of Archimedes will endure and Euclid will endure forever and perhaps the great players will be forgotten and the magnificent publication of the games by the machines will take over. And yet, and yet... It is difficult to conceive of a serious poem or a fruitful philosophic conjecture as detached from the enigmatic creativity of the human person. Computers can neither mourn nor, what may be more important, until now rejoice. That may change, that may change. Uh, when that screen will start flashing, you idiot, you know. When the computer will begin to be amused by its weak human opponent, but not yet. We may indeed be damaged goods in a world increasingly threatening But we know that we are damaged goods, and that, until now, puts us in an intellectual and moral class of our own. Heidegger, a very evil titan, but a titan, wondered towards the end of his life, and I quote, could it be that we have not yet learned to think? It's a question which haunts one. If I understand him rightly, he means by that that our present intellectual processes are still very, very rudimentary. And here come the neurophysiologists, the neurobiologists, and say, yes, indeed, two-thirds of the cortex is until now largely idle. Two-thirds of our cortex has not been fully enlisted in our intellectual processes. Will evolution change this? Will we be around long enough for the cortex or a larger part of it to be enlisted in the energies and processes of thought? It would be very, very foolish, as I say, to predict but the years that lie immediately ahead are formidably challenging. There's no doubt 
that the line between creativity and analytic inventory in the new synapses on the supercomputers, on the webs, the surfing of the web across a planetary question, the immediate interchange of stimulus and information are not technical. They are technical and they are much more. A new technique, said Hegel, just when the industrial explosion came, the industrial revolution was exploding around him, a new technique is always a new metaphysic. It isn't just a technique. Where a technique is powerful enough, it changes the limits of sensibility and of consciousness. Could it be that what lies ahead is more and more a retreat from the text as we have known it and an entry into an open-ended series of languages, many of which will be symbolic, pictorial, indeed musical, as language in the old sense begins to give up much of its domination, much of its rhetorical logos. The young today are already very, very far from us. And there are young here, but I'm thinking of children. There are children who have been discovering original theorems in modal logic and in fractals, which is a lovely branch of mathematics. Lots of little things that grow on your screen like a living organism. These children are illiterate. They neither read nor write. You go up to a child like that, now this is imaginary, and I say to him, mon cher, you're illiterate. And if he's polite at all, he'll say, no, monsieur, you are. And there the conversation horribly ends for the moment. But it's a valid exchange. Because these children are beginning to feel their way into a world which may, which may indeed, have its own poetry, its own poetics of discovery and of analysis. A world where fewer and fewer will read, horrifies me, it frightens me. But that is a matter of age and of the profound changes in our life and history. One must be very careful not to have apocalyptic and prophetic pronouncements, most of which are nonsense anyway. Remember our prophecies always are read from a rearview mirror, always. There is no other way for us to predict things. And there may come a world in which Leibniz's dream, with which I would like to conclude, will be realized. What was Leibniz's dream? Enough of all this nonsense of abominable translations, of having to learn thousands of languages. You give every concept a number, you put the numbers on the board there. When I was a very, very young man at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, I once passed the open door of an office, and there were mathematicians, Russian, Japanese, and American, working together at lightning speed on the series of boards, 
in total silence. In total silence. I stopped and the world changed for me. They had no need of the disorder and messiness of natural language. It's not a world I would choose to inhabit, but that's a wonderful advantage of old age. Thank you. Um, when I hear you speak, I realize what we stand to lose. And um, I'm um, interested in your um, sadness that you um, speak for me at least when you mention that. Um, the concept of the power of now, which is uh, a very kind of American notion, you know, that the past is the past, the future is not known to us, but now is the moment that we live in. You know, Eckhart and all these kind of uh, modern philosophers, if you could call them that. Um, I wonder where the power of now fits into um, your very renaissance and um, beautiful um, I hope from the heart continuum of thought. that you're right, but they're beginning to find out extraordinary things about our emotions. There is a neuro, neurochemistry of emotion which is gaining rapidly from day to day. Fear, desire, passions of every kind can be altered in milliseconds by drugs. In milliseconds. We can transform your behavior, your attitudes, your beliefs with drugs. Drugs are incredibly powerful. The whole pharmacology of consciousness is going to become more and more important. Sorry, I'm delighted I'm not going to be around. Um, my name's Nico McDonald. Um, I have one reflection and one question. Uh, your sadness about the Kasparov loss to Deep Blue or whichever IBM computer it was doesn't sadden me so much, partly because uh, my logic is not that... Uh, well, my logic is more when computers can create computers that can defeat people at chess or can create things which are better than themselves, then they're becoming human, or at least they're becoming non-computers. Uh, it's still more impressive to be able to create a computer and to conceive of the idea of creating a computer which could compete at chess 
the actual computing itself is an algorithmic thing, which is not so profound. Uh, that was just my observation. My question is, you talked about Hegel and new techniques and new techniques creating new consciousness. Um, I, this may or may not be germane, but a lot of the work I do is around the relationship of technology and society and trying to develop a critique around the discourse, contemporary discourse, that in some way digital technology and the internet and so on are changing behavior and changing consciousness in some ways and people talk about digital children and these kind of things and digital natives uh, and I wonder if you had any specific reflections on the way in which information technology and human uh, trends in human society relate to one another do social trends create a need and in fact lead to the creation of these technologies or is that too binary if you like or do those technologies then go on to shape our consciousness in new ways. I'd be interested to hear more about that. It's an immensely difficult question. On one thing, we seem to have got it very wrong, but it's a major point. The belief was that where the internet penetrates, where you can surf the web and the net, a certain political openness or freedom would have to follow because you couldn't cut off information. And so far this looks wrong. There are, I think, 80, 90 million now screens in China and it doesn't bother the regime one little bit. And there are despotisms all over the world which can no longer block out the last time that this really worked was when television did penetrate East Germany. And when East Germans saw more and more of the Western way of life, it mattered and the opposition began rolling. That we can document. And that's pretty primitive. That was, you will laugh, it was the shoes worn by the characters in Dallas. document. <laughs> <laughs> People said, my God, do ordinary people have shoes like that in America? Enormous moment. Um, why can't we have decent shoes? But our hopes more recently, where satellites can beam every day into Iran, any amount of material, even neutral, scientific education, the liberation of women, and it isn't working. Now, I've no answer to this. We seem to have hit the peculiar barrier where despotic power can live with information without being changed by it. And that would be very, very worrying indeed. Thank you. Hi. Um, when you talked about the mathematicians, you called their languages natural languages. Um, I was wondering what you meant exactly by that. As in, where is the line between a natural language from their native tongue and a natural language being math mathematics? When you talked about the mathematicians working silently together, you called their native tongues natural languages. I was wondering where you drew the line between natural languages and native tongues and mathematics. 
Did you hear it? Where you draw the line between natural languages yes. and mathematics and formal languages, I think. There are three fundamental semantic possibilities. Natural language, mathematics, and music. Music is absolutely universal. We know of no community on Earth without it. Mathematics seems to be more specialized, except that it's very rudimentary, but it has an immense advantage. It cannot lie. It can have errors, but it cannot lie. Language is shot through with falsehood, with rhetorical exploitation, with political ideology. There's scarcely a linguistic structure which is not also an ideology. And I do draw sharp line after Galileo, because Galileo helps us draw the line. Galileo, you remember, says roughly before me, you could speak almost every scientific axiom you can't now. Either you will realize that nature speaks algebra, and you will learn it, or you won't be able to listen. So from then on, roughly, the gap is a very deep one. Um, sorry. Um, Mr. Steiner. Um, you help me. <coughs> two, um, two of a number of things that... Uh, uh, you said, give me great cause for hope. Um, you said, quoting Valérie, all thought begins as a poem. And I wonder whether that is because, and you've given marvelous examples across the ages, whether poetic language is so aligned uh, with nature, with the force of nature, with the rhythm of nature, with the harmony of nature. Um, and you also say the soul is immortal and unimperishable and will exist in the next world. And I wonder whether that does not imply that the soul is a form of energy and energy cannot be destroyed. And whatever happens via the web, with neurological, mathematical discovery, there are certain um, uh, inviolate forces that are timeless, they are universal. Even if we destroy this planet of ours, they will continue. Both Aristotle and St. Thomas would agree with every word you said. Already Aristotle doesn't have our entropy principle, but he does have something on conservation of energy, which is very close to what you said. Um, derive what comfort you can from it. <laughs> each one of us has to make up his mind to that. It's late, and let me say what we have to live with now. On the third day of the siege of the Russian school at Beslan, by the Chechen raiding parties. The children who had had no food, no water, who could no longer drink their own urine, 
were going mad with thirst, with fear, with misery. Up to then, led by their teachers, who were tremendously brave, they had been praying in Russian Gospodin to God. And suddenly, they began praying to Harry Potter's wizard. This is very important. They now felt, by some obscure instinct of a final terror, that that was a much better chance. Think of that example. It's Harry Potter's wizard, not Gospodin, who might have brought them help. The more you think about that, the more it means we have to face the world of mass media consumption, including inspired pitch, which that is, of course, inspired pitch in order to grasp what consciousness is hanging on to. For Archimedes, it was conic sections. For the children of Beslan, it was Harry Potter's wizard. But of course, the human need for transcendent help is, if anything, going worse. There are in the United States three times as many registered astrologers as there are physicists. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>